Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. When I started getting these tapes, uh, it was real easy for me because uh, one of the things I insisted on whenever I bought a car is that it had a cassette player in it. Picture this. A state lawmaker commutes an hour and a half to his state capital back in the age of cassette tapes. He drives a big yellow car. We called it the Banana Mobile, and it was a, an Oldsmobile Cutlass, and it had about 140,000 miles on it, I think, at the time. And not only did it have a cassette player, but it had leather seats. So when I would make a trip up to St. Paul, I would pop one of these cassettes uh, into my cassette player in the car, and it would run pretty much the whole trip uh, to St. Paul. First thing you got to do is be confident. On any given day, 60 to 65 percent of the American people share your values. It is vitally important that every young Republican in America become a catalyst for 10, 15, 20, 30 other people. This is Congressman Newt Gingrich. As a candidate, you've probably been listening to tapes from GOPAC all year. Each one of you personally brushes the teeth every morning of the human being who is morally responsible for whether this country is free and prosperous and safe. In some respects, it was kind of an intimate relationship because it was just Newt and I in the car. And uh, we had an hour and a half together. And he talked about issues that ranged from uh, taxes to spending, uh, welfare to workfare, uh, foreign policy issues. This is Gil Gutnicht, a Republican from Minnesota. And the tapes have become the stuff of conservative legend. They were produced by a group called GOPAC. It's been around since the late 1970s, and its mission is to train Republicans on how to be candidates. And in 1986, GOPAC was taken over by Newt Gingrich. Uh, Newt, as you may know, was a historian. He is a historian. Uh, in my opinion, he's a genius. But perhaps his greatest quality is he is one of the most effective communicators that I have ever met. In the last episode, you heard how Newt Gingrich began winning over his fellow Republicans, convincing them that they were being trampled by an arrogant Democratic majority and that the only answer was to fight back and to fight back hard. And you heard how he used C-SPAN to sell this message to grassroots Republicans across the country who started wondering why their local Republican leaders weren't more like Newt. But now, in order to take the next step, Gingrich needs an even bigger army, and the GOPAC tapes become one of the most powerful vehicles for building it. As I understand, they were, they were sending them out to literally thousands of state legislators and other, uh, I would call them younger leaders that were emerging in the Republican Party, and Newt transformed GOPAC from essentially raising money to help candidates uh, into building a farm club for the Grand Old Party. On the tapes, Gingrich plays coach, strategist, and cheerleader. 
we begin to see how our vision of building a community is realized because people begin to realize, yes, over there is the loony left, corrupt big city machine, big labor boss coalition, over here is us. Here are the values we want to help. Here's how we It was the tone, I think, more than anything else that, that, that I re remember about the GOPAC tapes. Uh, it, was, it was the optimistic conservative message that came through loud and clear, and it was uh, helping us to believe in ourselves. Helping Republicans to believe that they could win. Sometimes the tapes have Gingrich speaking directly to potential candidates. Sometimes they're recordings of speeches or interviews he's given. But no matter what the format, they're supplying candidates with the same talking points so that all over the country, they can make the same conservative arguments. With 12-year-olds having babies, with 14-year-olds doing drugs. Gingrich wants to make the contrast feel sharp and the stakes high. Notice, too, that the language is accessible, it's clear, and it's easy to understand. It's aimed straight at that populist vein that has long been Newt's target. This is how Newt is training Republicans to communicate. Gil Gutnicht would ultimately decide to run for Congress in 1994, and as he recalls, the tapes were key to that decision. But, he stresses, they were only part of it. I think it, it, was, it was a lot of things. There was a confluence. There was Rush Limbaugh on the radio. There were the, the GOPAC tapes. Um, it was almost like the German word is zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. That's right. Rush Limbaugh on the radio. I say on the radio, I'm not trying to persuade anybody. Don't worry about me. Hell no. I'm, I'm just a guy on the radio having fun. Am I trying to get anybody elected? No. Already did. <laughs> Already did is what he said. Gingrich and allies like Rush Limbaugh would eventually get a lot of people into office. But first, Gingrich would get some very powerful people out. He'd take on a new House speaker and then his own party's president. This is The Revolution, and I'm Steve Kornacki. Episode 3, Spoiler and Victor. It's January 1987, and in the House of Representatives, the Speaker's gavel is taken up by a new leader. Tip O'Neill has just retired, and the job goes to his longtime number two, Jim Wright of Texas. That young and tender-looking guy with the bushy eyebrows is, is I... This is Jim Wright in an oral history from something called the Sixth Floor Museum, which is in Dallas. He's talking about a picture taken on November 22nd, 1963. I suppose that was the happiest and the saddest day of my life. Wright represented Fort Worth. He helped to plan the visit from President Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy. And he was in the motorcade in Dallas. Decades on, he still sounded baffled by what happened that day. I heard the first shot. So it sounded like a rifle shot, but... I couldn't imagine so in Congress. Wright was telling this story in 1996 when he was retired from politics. He said that he remembered Kennedy's assassination as a turning point. We did in our grief draw together and we had a sense of compatibility and cooperation. And that's how things get done. I regret that uh, that mood didn't endure. And maybe in the nature of human creatures, it just isn't uh, going to endure. Jim Wright might be talking about human nature generally, 
But it wouldn't be a surprise if he was also thinking of his own political demise. So again, it's 1987, and Wright, at 64 years old, becomes the speaker. For him, this is the realization of a long-held dream. Democrats still have that massive majority. Wright has all sorts of plans for what to do with it. But he's also got to contend with a Republican minority that seems to be changing. Now, Bob Michael is still the GOP leader, but Newt Gingrich and his allies are getting louder and more aggressive, and they're winning new converts. And in Wright's ascension, they see a new opening. Because while Tip O'Neill was well-liked, even by many Republicans, Wright is much more reserved. Some found him prickly, even cold. And as it turns out, Jim Wright is the best thing to ever happen to Newt Gingrich. Jim was never really comfortable in that role. This is Tony Quello, a former Democratic congressman from California. He was aggressive, always trying to push and so forth. Um, whereas Chip, it was sort of like, I'm in charge. And that was it. And he could make deals. Wright died in 2015, but I actually heard something similar about him from Dick Gephardt, who was elected to the House in 1976 and would eventually become the Democrats' leader. He, he was more willing to do things kind of over the line or out of the box from the past to get things done. He really wanted to achieve some big policy objectives while he was speaker. And then also, and I don't know if I'm completely right in this, but I don't think Tip would have done what Jim did with the selling of the books, which was the main charge that 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 Gingrich made against him. The selling of the books. This is where Newt's biggest breakthrough yet begins. In late September of 1987, not quite nine months into Wright's speakership, the Washington Post runs a story with the headline, Speaker's Royalty 55%. It reveals an unusual book deal Wright struck with a small-time publisher, a friend of his from back home in Fort Worth. And the book is really nothing more than a short collection of Wright's essays and speeches. Physically, it's more of a large pamphlet than a book. But Wright is getting a 55% royalty on each and every sale. In the world of publishing, this is an absolutely unheard of amount. Typically, royalties might run around 10%. And Wright, the Post reports, had made almost $55,000 so far from this deal. As it later comes out, What's helping to drive the sales is that some of Wright's political allies, like the Teamsters, are buying it up, often in bulk. It all smells funny, for sure. But when the Post first runs this story, nobody in the House remarks upon it publicly. After all, as Gingrich's lieutenant, Bob Walker, told me... There were many of us, including me, that were a little squeamish about uh, taking on the speaker over that because of not exactly a... um, unknown process in the house to write a book and then have the unions on the other side buy up large numbers of the books that provided uh, the member with a little extra income. So at first, when the Post story comes out, it seems to fade away and D.C. moves on. But then, about six weeks later, in November of 1987, Speaker Wright does something 
that absolutely enrages Republicans in the House, a power play that they believe Tip O'Neill would never have dared attempt. It starts with a tight vote on a tax bill. It's a bill that's very important to write. He wants to get this through. So many of favor final passage of the bill. will vote aye. So many as are opposed will vote no. In the, in the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. That's right presiding. He's trying to pass the bill. The voice vote is ceremonial. Now there will be a recorded vote to put each member on the record. If you've watched C-SPAN over the years, you know how this looks on TV. The sound of the House floor is muted, classical music plays, and members cast their votes by electronic device and then mill about and watch the tally board. Stick with me here, because the procedural details matter. If you watch the C-SPAN footage from this particular vote in November 1987, what you'll see on the screen is the usual vote tally and countdown clock set for the usual 15 minutes. And when the time runs out, the vote tally stops at 205 yeas and 206 nays. That means the Democrats and Speaker Wright have lost by one vote. Gingrich is in the camera shot here. He's smiling, he's standing behind Bob Michael, and it looks like he reaches over to shake somebody's hand. This is a big moment for the Republicans. They're the minority party, right, is a powerful speaker, but they've won this vote. They've convinced just enough Democrats to join them in opposing rights tax bill. They're ready to celebrate. But when the sound of the chamber comes back on, the speaker doesn't confirm the numbers that were just on screen. Any other members in the chamber who desire to vote? What's happening here is that Wright has an extra vote in his pocket. A fellow Texan, Jim Chapman, who has already voted no, but who has privately told Wright that he's willing to switch his vote if the speaker absolutely needs it. And clearly, in this moment, Wright does absolutely need it. So even though time has expired, Wright is holding the vote open and basically telling Chapman to come forward and switch his vote to yes, which Chapman then does. And so now suddenly there are 206 yeses and only 205 noes. If there are no other members on this vote... And then Newt Gingrich gets on the mic. Once the speaker has said the vote is closed and all time has expired, and that is on the tape, we have it on the videotape. Once that has been done, how can it be reopened? The chair had been advised that there were other members en route, and therefore the chair was holding open and still holds open if if members uh, wish to change their votes or other members wish to vote. Now Wright is ready to declare the vote closed. And if no other members desire to vote or to change their votes, all time has expired. Gingrich is talking over him as he states the new totals. On this vote, the yeas are 206. Parliamentary inquiry. The nays are 205. Parliamentary inquiry, Mr. Speaker. There's a bit more haggling, but there's nothing anyone can do. Wright is the speaker, and he has the power to do this. The yeas are 206. The nays are 205. Yeah, the 
bill is passed without objection a motion to reconsider laid upon the table what Wright has done is technically within the rules of the house but it's also far from normal the way republicans see it Wright couldn't win fair and square but instead of admitting defeat he opted to play dirty and to win dishonorably they are furious when this happens they also want revenge and soon enough Newt Gingrich is offering them a chance to get it. How? By calling for an official ethics investigation of Jim Wright. In his trademark fashion, Gingrich begins his push with dramatic, unsparing, and highly personal attacks. To the Miami Herald, he says that Wright is like the Italian dictator Mussolini and, quote, a genuinely bad man, a genuinely corrupt man. And on NBC's Nightly News, he has this to say about Wright. He, uh, so far, has been the least ethical and most destructive speaker in the 20th century. Immediately, this becomes Newt's driving cause, a campaign to take down the Speaker of the House. It seems to me that, that what's happened is the weight of evidence over time went from an occasional anecdote to what has now become almost a barrage over the last 11 months of stories that indicate he needs to be investigated. But what about he would literally walk around with press clippings of different stories about Jim Wright and hand them out to the reform organization, to legislators. This is Julian Zelizer, a historian who wrote a book about Newt Gingrich and Jim Wright called Burning Down the House. Zelizer tells me that the backbone of Newt's case came through various news reports that scrutinized Wright. The story of the book deal, of course, but also questions about a business relationship with a real estate developer and ties to the savings and loan industry. For months, Gingrich rails against Wright and vows to file a complaint with the House Ethics Committee. And in May of 1988, he follows through. I have delivered today a letter to Ethics Committee Chairman Julian Dixon calling for an investigation of Speaker Wright. It is signed by 71 members of the House Representatives. This style of politics is hardly unheard of today, but it's brand new in the late 1980s. Going after a speaker like this is kind of like shooting a general in war. It just isn't the way things are done in the House. It puts Republican leaders like Bob Michael in a tough spot. On the one hand, this is pushing the House further in the direction of the kind of personalized combat they are conditioned to reject. On the other hand, though, they kind of think Wright deserves it. Ultimately, when Gingrich files his complaint, no Republican tries to stop him. Wright defends himself. He thinks he's got the rules on his side. Here's historian Julian Zelizer again. Wright believed, in the end, he hires all these high-profile Washington attorneys to help him when the investigation is taking place, that if he could prove that he didn't violate the laws and that he didn't violate ethics rules, and he can get lawyers to show this to the ethics committee, that was sufficient. Still, even if they like seeing Wright put through the ringer like this, most Republicans and just about everyone in the House assume that Wright will have no trouble surviving as Speaker. No one thinks it's going to work. Uh, even most Republicans think, of course, he's not going to like fall from power. He's the Speaker of the House. But Newt is relentless here. And really, what he's doing with Jim Wright it's straight out of the same playbook he used when he made his first splash in the House back in 1979 with Charles Diggs. 
His strategy is to focus on the story, as he did with Diggs, to create a narrative that you had this fundamentally corrupt politician, different than everyone else on the Hill, uh, and that if he stayed in power, the entire system wouldn't work. This country is in real trouble if we have another 10 or 15 years of the sickness that you now see with Jim Wright and all of the corruption and all the ethics problems in this house. The Gingrich war against Jim Wright catches on, and the media puts the speaker under the microscope. There's a drumbeat of stories that question his conduct. The Ethics Committee votes to take up the case, and then it decides to hire an outside investigator, an aggressive trial lawyer from Chicago named Richard Phelan. Very quickly, the Wright probe starts to look very serious. It takes nearly a year, but finally... In April of 1989, the Ethics Committee releases its preliminary report. And for Wright, it is damning. It accuses him of 69 violations of House rules. Sources tell NBC News the Speaker has been found to have violated House rules by a bipartisan consensus of the Ethics Committee. A feeding frenzy is unleashed. The Ethics Committee is moving forward. The next step is to render a formal judgment on each accusation of rules violations and then, ultimately, to make a recommendation to the House for a punishment. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, comes one big story in the Washington Post that seals Wright's fate. It's not directly about Wright. It's about his top aide, a man named John Mack, and something Mack had done 16 years earlier. Here's Julian Zelizer again. He had brutally and viciously attacked a woman when he was working as a store clerk. And he had admitted to having done it. He never really excused why he did it. He didn't even have a rationale. He just said he was stressed. But the article also goes on to say that Wright had helped him reduce his sentence. Uh, and ultimately uh, hired him. Wright has family connections to Mac. He'd left the woman he'd attacked for dead. It was a miracle she'd survived. But after serving around two years in jail for this, Mac had been released and found low-level work in Wright's office. Then he'd worked his way up to the very top, becoming the most powerful aide to the most powerful man in the house. And now... His violent history is being aired, and it ignites a whole new set of questions about Jim Wright's judgment. It's finally dawning on the speaker that he's holding a losing hand. Let me uh, give you back this job you gave to me. It's May 31st, 1989. The House chamber is packed. Television cameras are rolling. I will resign Speaker of the House effective upon the election of my successor. Jim Wright stands at a podium on the Democratic side of the House floor and he's facing his colleagues. Have I made mistakes? Oh boy, how many? I made a lot of mistakes. He doesn't mention Gingrich by name, but make no mistake, the speech is almost entirely about Newt. It is grievously hurtful to our society. And vilification becomes an accepted form of political debate. And negative campaigning becomes a full-time occupation. When members of each party become self-appointed vigilantes, carrying out personal vendettas against members of the other party. God's name, that's not what this institution is supposed to be all about. All of us in 
both political parties must resolve to bring this period of mindless cannibalism to an end. There's been enough of it. Here's Julian Zelizer again. When Wright resigns, and uh, he does it without the ethics committee, without the House forcing him to do it, it's seen as a real victory for Gingrich. He just took the biggest target in Washington other than the president and brought him down from power. And at the same time, Newt's power is growing because while he's leading the charge against Speaker Wright, he's also campaigning for a leadership role of his own. That's coming up. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Let's go back to early 1989. This is just a few months before Jim Wright's resignation, and the new Republican president is working to fill his cabinet. To be his Secretary of Defense, George Herbert Walker Bush has nominated a retired senator from Texas named John Tower. But it turns out that Tower has a reputation. The Washington Post, quoting official sources, says the FBI has received allegations that former Senator John Tower had a, quote, protracted relationship with a Russian ballerina in Texas. Tower faces allegations of womanizing, also ethical breaches and conflicts of interest. And when the Senate finally votes on Tower's nomination, he loses. And that leaves President Bush scrambling for a new nominee. All of this matters to our story because the man that President Bush chooses is a congressman from Wyoming by the name of Dick Cheney. And Cheney, at that point, is the minority whip in the House, which means he's number two on the Republican side, right behind Bob Michael. Cheney is confirmed quickly and easily. That's a big reason why Bush nominated him. And suddenly, that means that the Republicans need a new whip. Gingrich jumps into the race. He's been in the House 10 years at this point, and he's won over plenty of Republicans in that time. But he's still seen as an insurgent. Are there enough Republicans in the House willing to elevate someone like him to the party leadership? This will be a test of how far he's come. His opponent will be the ultimate establishment man, Ed Madigan. He's from Illinois, and he's running with the blessing and the full backing of Bob Michael. This is historian Julian Zelizer again. House Republicans, as the frenzy over Jim Wright is accelerating before he resigns, they have a choice. And the choice is presented to them is, do you want Gingrich, who's going to do anything necessary for Republicans to win power, even if it's things you find scary 
or dangerous? Or do you want Madigan more of the same? He'll follow the rules and those rules will leave you in the minority. So this is a test for Bob Michael, too. Does he still have enough sway with Republicans to keep someone like Gingrich out of leadership? For Newt, this is a battle he's been preparing for since his first day in the House. Here he is from one of his GOPAC tapes. And I'm going to give you the one specific model each of you ought to learn. It's four words. Listen, learn, help, and lead. The way you get to be a successful politician is simple. Gingrich is giving a speech to young Republicans, and he says that listening helped him in the whips race. For all his public bombast and his creation of the Conservative Opportunity Society, he's been listening to moderates and building relationships behind the scenes with some unlikely allies, such as... I am Claudine Schneider. I was and am a Republican um, from 1980 to 1990. I represented the state of Rhode Island in the U.S. Congress. Claudine Schneider had worked with Gingrich on an environmental bill. It was something she cared a lot about. And when Newt becomes a candidate for WHIP, she's intrigued. At that moment in time, I trusted him. I saw the qualities of him being, you know, strategic, a good communicator, and I knew that I could work with him. He listened to me at the time. Schneider is part of an informal group of moderate Republicans called the Gypsy Moths. There were anywhere between 25 to 29 of us. And so we were the swing vote because we didn't care whether a bill was introduced by the Republicans or by the Democrats. We had one common agenda, and that was, is this in the best interest of all the people? Schneider says she wasn't on board with all of Newt Gingrich's ideas. Newt Gingrich came up with what he called a sheet of music. And uh, this is something that all of us Republicans were supposed to repeat, such as uh, the Democrats only care about tax and spend. I thought, well, wait a minute, that's not true. But when it's time to decide who to back in the whip election, she throws her support to Newt. I thought, yes, he would be a good whip. And I have a good working relationship with him, so I will be able to influence him as well as the rest of the gypsy moths. The Gingrich-Madigan race looks close, and the day of the vote is drawing near. Hoping to put himself over the top, Gingrich leans on another moderate woman, Olympia Snow, then a congresswoman from Maine. Gingrich wants her to deliver a speech seconding his nomination. In her memoir, she writes of getting a call from him at 9 o'clock the night before with the request. Snow agrees to do it. The way she tells it in her memoir, in her speech to the Republican conference, she calls Newt Gingrich and Bob Michael the odd couple. And she says that for Republicans to win the House majority, an odd couple is what they need. She acknowledges that her and Newt's voting records are, quote, something quite short of carbon copies. But she goes on to argue that this would make him key to a coalition that could, quote, shatter the yoke of the status quo. We had hoped to talk with Snow, who later served three terms in the Senate, about her role in this pivotal moment in House history, but she declined our request. From the outside, the whole deal looked a little less congenial. He was plotting the whole time. And it was just a matter of time before he was going to take over. That's Andrea Mitchell, who was then NBC News' chief congressional correspondent. 
She covered the 89 GOP whip race and remembers it as an unofficial clash between Gingrich and Bob Michael. Bob Michael was just sort of this sweet, he kind of shambled along. There was no way that he was going to crack a whip. And Gingrich literally and figuratively was the whip. And there was no way they were going to be able to work together or that Michael would be able to survive this. Was part of the dynamic that Gingrich had been there 10 years, he had kind of built, he'd kind of won converts in that time among Republicans. What was the appeal of him to to Republicans? The appeal was they thought he was a winner, a killer and a winner. I think they were sick of being in the minority. So even the moderates wanted to have a better vision of their future. The day of the whip election arrives, March 22nd, 1989, and Newt's unlikely coalition prevails, barely. He defeats Ed Madigan by just two votes, 87 to 85. The irony is lost on no one. For all of his reputation as a right-wing firebrand, it's the votes of moderate Republicans that have put Gingrich over the top. And included in that total are the votes of most of the Republican women, Still morning. Good morning, everyone. After the vote, uh, Bob Michael and Newt Gingrich hold a press conference. Every element of this party is winning through this process. It's not a conservative activist victory. It is the entire Republican team. I thought it was. We Newt makes asked. a point of commending Bob Michael's leadership, but still, there seems to be some pretty obvious tension beneath the surface. Why? Do you ever feel it might have been a test of your leadership, Mr. Michael? Well, what there were those people who. I earlier on er, uh, learned had committed themselves to knit, to Newt, and said, uh, (laughs) (laughs) as Newt says, it'll take a while. Coming up, for all the talk of Republican unity, Gingrich becomes an obstacle to the head of his own party and helps to torpedo a presidency. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. The story of Newt Gingrich leading a revolt against his own party's president starts with a promise, a campaign promise. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will and the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no. And they'll push and I'll say no. And they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips. No. 
That's George Herbert Walker Bush accepting the nomination for president at the Republican National Convention. It's August of 1988, and his promise of no new taxes wins over conservative skeptics and helps to deliver him to the White House. But by 1990, the economy is heading toward recession. Budget deficits are growing. And just as President Bush had predicted, Democrats in Congress want him to raise taxes. Except now, Bush is in a more pragmatic state of mind. Dick Gephardt is the Democratic majority leader by this point. I asked him about Bush's position. When does the idea come on the table that the president might be willing to reverse himself? We were uh, called down to the White House uh, two or three times. George Mitchell, Tom Foley, myself. Those are the three top Democrats in Congress. And the Republican leaders, I guess it would be Dole and Michael. That would be Senate Minority Leader Bob Dole, and you know Bob Michael. The president wants to hold a budget summit because he's worried about the growing deficit and he wants an agreement between the parties to address it. But at this point, in the spring of 1990, according to Gephardt, he's told the Democrats, I can't have taxes on the table because I gave this speech when I got nominated and said, read my lips, no new taxes. But remember, Democrats hold the power in Congress. The Republican president can't pass a budget without them. I think we had dinner in the Oval Office. I'm not sure it was around there somewhere. And he looked at us across the table and he said, okay. I'm putting everything on the table. And he said, I've written you a letter that says we're going to have a something. We've agreed to have a summit. And George Mitchell, who was unbelievable, said to the president, could you amend the letter to say, and everything's on the table, including taxes. <laughs> so the president said, oh, man. But he did it. So we go outside the White House and we're waiting for the cars to come up. And the president is standing next to me. And he says, uh, he's going foot to foot. He, he's just nervous as a cat. And I said, Mr. President, what's wrong? And he said, the fat's in the fire. And he knew what he had done to have this summit because he was offending the, the whole right wing of the Republican Party. The government is drowning in red ink and it needs more revenue. That's what Democrats see. And it's what Bush sees, too. And it's what the top two Republican congressional leaders see as well. Bob Michael from the House, Bob Dole from the Senate. So for four and a half months in 1990, leaders from both parties try to hammer out a deal. And on the last day of September, Bush announces it, standing with congressional leadership from both parties in the Rose Garden. The bipartisan leaders and I have reached agreement on the federal budget. Over five years, it would reduce the projected deficit by $500 billion. That is half a trillion dollars. He explains how they got to that number, a mix of spending cuts and caps and... The agreement would increase tax revenues by $134 billion, the largest single increase... A single contributor uh, would be a phased-in increase in the gasoline tax of five cents per gallon in the first year and another five cents uh, in the following years. I do not welcome any such tax measure, nor do I expect anybody up here does. This is a major event. You don't gather a bipartisan crowd of politicians in the Rose Garden if you don't think you've got a done deal. But on this day, the real action is happening off camera. 
because the man whose job is to round up votes for his party, the House Republican whip, isn't there. But the next day, Newt Gingrich is on NBC's Nightly News. Going into the Rose Garden implied support. So I went out the other door. And as he did, he phoned a friend. I got a call from Newt (laughs) as he was walking, I think, down the street. Bob Walker, Newt's ally in Congress. He said, I think we just went to war. (laughs) Uh, and, um, And indeed, we did. The Republican establishment had been hopeful that Gingrich would fall in line. But Dick Gephardt could have told them what Newt was going to do. As the House Majority Leader, he'd been running the negotiations for the better part of a year. We weren't getting anywhere. So, a few weeks before that announcement at the White House, he rounds up the bargaining teams, congressional Democrats and Republicans and White House staffers, and he buses them over to Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. For like four days and nights, locked them up in the officers' club. And we finished the negotiation there. I had a hot fudge Sunday with Bob Dole every night. I think I gained 10 pounds in that summit. This is where Gephardt finds out that no matter what anybody agrees to, the minority whip isn't going to support it. We were sitting around a big square table going through all the pieces. And I had told Dick Darman, who was leading the White House's effort, we had to have some tax in this somewhere if we're going to have cuts on everything, including defense. And so they put some things in, taxes on luxury boats or something, private airplanes. I forget what it all was. And I'm sitting next to Newt during this negotiation, and he's reading magazines. He didn't say a word. And I leaned I said, Newt, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm not going to be for this. And I said, you're not. Darman told me you're going to be for it if we get a compromise. He said, no, I'm not going to be for it. So I went to Darman and I said, this is what he's saying. He said, no, no, no. He said, the president has got his word. He is going to be for it. I said, well, that's not what I'm hearing. So watch out. I am the whip of the House Republican Conference, not of the president. That's Gingrich again on NBC News. The way he sees it, the deal threatens everything he's been trying to achieve. Clear and vivid contrasts with Democrats, small government versus big government, individual opportunity versus welfare state dependency, and so on. Tax hikes are something that Democrats do, not Republicans. The rest of the congressional GOP leadership doesn't see it this way, but plenty of rank-and-file Republicans do. They're with Newt. And for President Bush, this is a mortal threat. If he and his party can't produce enough votes for the deal, then it could all fall apart. So, two days after announcing the deal, the president makes his case in a primetime address to the nation, and he lays it on thick with a reference to Saddam Hussein's recent invasion of Kuwait. As we speak, our nation is standing together against Saddam Hussein's aggression. But here at home, there's another threat, a cancer gnawing away at our nation's health. That cancer is the budget deficit. Bush has invoked an impending war to sell the deal. But if he thinks that's going to bring the House Republican whip into line... Morning, Congressman. Good morning. You've said that this deal is bad for the economy. The president say anything to change your mind last night? No, I listened intently, and of course I have the greatest respect for him, and I've supported him... The president and the rest of the congressional leadership are for this compromise plan. But Gingrich knows how it'll play back home. At a press conference later that day... He says he's hearing from those people. 
In my district, as of a few minutes ago, we'd had 775 calls today, 83 percent against the agreement. Other members, Republicans and Democrats, are hearing the same. And the midterms are just a month away. There seems to be a populist backlash afoot. And it's not just because of what Newt Gingrich and his allies are saying in Washington. If you listen to this show every day, you never need to read another newspaper again, never read another magazine. I do it for you and you get a bonus. I tell you what to think. When you talk to the average Republican who listens to listened to Rush Limbaugh or saw us on C-SPAN, they would pick up and repeat things that they'd heard again and again and again. And, you know, you think about it in, in just in practical life. People sit around in the local restaurant and they start arguing about politics. Most of them are not terribly political. But if there's a couple people at the table that listen to Rush Limbaugh, they can win every argument because most people don't pay that much attention to it. Keep in mind that at this time, conservative talk radio is exploding. That's thanks in part to the 1987 repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, an old rule that had required broadcasters to give equal time to opposing political viewpoints. Stations across the country are striking gold, programming to the right side of the spectrum. Rush Limbaugh's three-hour daily show goes national in the summer of 1988 and is by far the biggest breakout star. Russia's politics are much like Newt's, a combative, populist-infused daily assault on the Democratic Party, the media, and the so-called elites, and on any Republican who would give Democrats aid and comfort. When it comes to fighting this tax hike deal, Rush and Newt are brothers in arms. Bush doesn't think he'll suffer from or, or be harmed by his uh, flip-flop on taxes. When you go to the average American and you say, we didn't cut the political spending in Washington by a dime, but you're going to cut your family spending with a gas tax increase, with a whole lot of other tax increases. Uh, the average American doesn't think that's good enough. The deal comes up for debate in the House on October 4th, and it goes late into the night, into the wee hours of October 5th, in fact. It's as tasteful as it is to choose bad policy. It's better than choosing no policy. Ray LaHood was there. You heard him in the first episode. He's a former Republican congressman and secretary of labor. But back then, he was the chief of staff to the Republican leader. Bob Michael, whose influence was waning. Here you have a man who worked his whole career on compromise and working with Democrats, and that entire process fell apart. It just completely imploded. I now yield five minutes to the distinguished minority leader, the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Michael, and I'd note the House is not in order. The gentleman is absolutely right. It's one o'clock in the morning when Bob Michael takes the floor. We couldn't get our side 176 together on the president's budget. Oh, I wish you'd just think about the problem, the trauma we got when the... And you ended up with um, a, a splinter group, a big splinter group of conservatives whose main claim to fame was, I did not come to Washington to raise taxes. And they killed the initial deal on the floor. That's correct. They sure did. Do you remember sure that did. night? What was that like? It, you know, it was um, it, it was as acrimonious as as you could get it during that period of time. With so many Republicans joining the Gingrich Rebellion, there are Democrats who begin peeling away too. They don't like some of the concessions that their leaders have made. The possibility that this vote may actually fail is now very real. There was just a huge division among Republicans. Bob Walker, who's in the building on this night, he's with Newt, but he's noticing which members of his party are supporting the president. 
The Republicans that, that they got were kind of the establishment Republicans who uh, had been around for a long time, knew George Bush when he was in the Congress, all of this. I mean, many of the votes we had were the younger members. Dick Gephardt is obviously there that night, too. And he says there's no mistaking Newt's ambitions with this vote. Gingrich's goal, only goal, was to win the House back. And he was dedicated entirely to that goal. In fact, I think when I said to him, uh, what are you doing, Newt? You're going to be for this, aren't you? And he said, no. He said, I want to win the House back. <laughs> I mean, he was honest. And that's what he was doing. The deal goes down in flames. A rebellion from his own party has sunk a delicate deal that the president spent months carefully constructing. For George H.W. Bush, it is pure humiliation. And among House Republicans, the emotions are raw. I went up to Denny Hastert at that time, who later, of course, became speaker, and he refused to shake my hand um, because he believed we were destroying the administration. And, you know, our belief was the administration was in the process of destroying itself. Ultimately, the Republican rebellion means that Bush has to cut a new tax hike deal with Democrats. This one, much more on the Democrats' terms. He signs it quietly just before the 1990 midterm elections. Two years later, in 1992, Bush is defeated. And to this day, it's debated what role the 1990 tax hike played in that loss. Many people I've talked to say he never recovered from going back on his promise or from what some insist was a betrayal by Newt Gingrich. Whatever the precise cause, Bush would end up being a one-term president, weakened by a Republican primary challenge from the right and then defeated in November by the governor of Arkansas. On paper, the 1992 election would leave the Republican Party at its weakest point in years. Democrats would now control everything, the presidency, the Senate, the House, with massive margins, too. It looked bad for Newt's dream of taking the House, but what no one understood then was that his goal would never be realized with a Republican in the White House. So the 1992 election of William Jefferson Clinton actually created the perfect set of conditions for Newt Gingrich's rendezvous with destiny. That's next on The Revolution. We made multiple requests to speak with Newt Gingrich for this podcast, but he was never made available. And then, after this series was released, we did hear from him. And you'll hear that conversation in Episode 7. From MSNBC, this is the third of six episodes of The Revolution. If you like what you've heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. The Revolution was written and hosted by me, Steve Kornacki. The series is produced by Franny Kelly, Ursula Summer, and Adam Naboa. It's edited by Allison McAdam. Our associate producer is Eva Ruth Moravec. Special thanks to Lacey Roberts. Sound designed by Ramtin Arablui. Bryson Barnes is our technical director, and he wrote our music. Soraya Gage is our executive producer. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. Hi, 
everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow.